Good morning. I want to welcome you to West Classic Chapel on this Lord's Day. My name is Ben and I serve as one of the elders. Pastor Joe is on vacation with his wife and they are currently taking their daughter Lindsay to start college. Please keep them in your prayers as it is a new transition for all of them. In Pastor Joe's absence, it's usually our pattern here at WCC to have an elder preach. So I have the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. But before I get to that, I want to take this opportunity to extend my most sincerest thanks to all of you as the body of Christ. You have prayed and supported me and my family this past month and a half since our son Bruce was born. To give a quick update, he is healthy, gaining weight, and wants to eat every two to three hours. Yes, sleep is precious in our household. All of the medical reports point to, that show that the cyst above the right side of his brain has not grown any, which is an awesome answer to prayer. We have a NICU follow-up appointment at St. Mary's Hospital in Duluth tomorrow, so please continue to pray. The theme of last summer and of this summer when Joe has been on vacation is to preach out of Revelation, specifically on Christ's letters to the seven churches. This will be the seventh and last church that we are covering. I'm going to read the passage and then ask for God's help to work through it. Our scripture comes from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. It can be found on page 868 in the Pew Bible. It reads as follows. To the angel in the church, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and now that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over, over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received my authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Father God, we come before you and we want to thank you for being our creator and our sustainer. You are awesome in power, and you have ordained everything in creation. We want to thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to be our Savior, that we may spend eternity with you. We pray that you would give us the help that we need as we work through this difficult text, and that you would be glorified because of it. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to begin by giving a brief background on the text itself. This is Christ speaking through the pen of John 
John is one of Jesus' 12 disciples and who is currently exiled on the island of Patmos for the gospel. We can see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It reads, John, I, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Also, each of these seven letters begin with the phrase, to the angel of the church, fill in the blank, right. The word angel here means messenger. Now, it could be a literal angel, but most likely is referring to a pastor or a pastor-like person who would lead the church and thus read the letter to the church. Some background information on Thyatira. It was located in West Asia Minor, or present-day Turkey. Thyatira has not had many architectural remains found on site, but what has been found shows a robust and, uh, civic and social life for about 500 years' worth, ending somewhere in the 3rd century A.D. They worshipped several gods, including Apollo and Artemis. The city was also a very important center for the wool trade. There are mentions of a guild of wool workers. This could be similar to our paper mill workers, miners, or loggers. There is also mention of dyers and fullers who would be associated with the wool trade. Most notably, we find this in Acts 16, 14, and 15. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Philippi. It happened to be the Sabbath, and they were going outside the city gate to look for a place to pray. They went down to the river, and sat. when they sat down, they started speaking to a group of women who were there. Verse 14 reads, One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and her members of her household were baptized, she invited, her, invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We see here that God is already starting to work in Thyatira through Lydia. Most scholars feel that she was either a good Gentile or a God-fearer who was attracted to Judaism. She was a well-to-do businesswoman, most likely widowed. We get this from the fact that she insists that Paul and his companions stay with, stay with her at her place, and there is not a mention of a husband or a, male care, or a male caregiver's approval. Consider at this time in history, women did not have the same rights they have now. She would have to have had a successful business to provide for herself and the rest of her household. Also, purple cloth was a luxury item. It's a pretty good bet she was well-to-do financially and had many business connections. As I've studied and learned more about Thyatira, I could not help but notice some of the similarities between there and where we live. Raw material production, successful support business, a community of good people that might even attend church but don't as of yet know Christ as their Savior. Is that for an introduction onto the first point, Jesus? Verse 18 our text states, these are the words of the Son of God. This statement alone is enough to give Christ all dominion, authority, and supremacy over all creation. Christ is God's only Son. The Son that God has sent to earth to live a perfect life so that he could die a death that you and I deserve. For the sins that you and I have committed yesterday are committing today and will commit tomorrow. Why was this done? Because God loved us so very much. 
Those of you who are parents, I would like you to think about this question I'm going to propose. Please don't answer it. Would you be willing to make the choice to sacrifice the life of your child, in this case your only child, for the life of somebody else? I know I'm glad I'm not faced with that decision. We should step back and reflect on the statement, the Son of God. God, the creator of the universe, has a son who is the only reason that we even have the opportunity at eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As I mentioned at the start, I have a son. And if someone started messing around with him, that someone and I would have some words. Now, most people don't go out of their way to offend a man of my caliber. But do we have that much consideration when it comes to the Son of God? Verse 18 continues speaking of Christ, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. For each of the letters written to each of the seven churches, one or more attributes of the risen Christ is listed, and it is used to help bring further clarity to the letter. It gives us insight on how this letter applies and why Christ is Lord even in the midst of their mess or trials for each particular church. Eyes like blazing fire. Obviously, eyes are meant for seeing. Fire is symbolic of a couple things. First, fire is a source of light, in which case is used to reveal. If a room is dark and someone comes in and turns on the light, does it not change the whole setting? Does not the darkness disappear and everything that is in the room be revealed? Second, fire has intense heat. It is used for the testing and purity of something, specifically something of worth, such as gold or silver. As I looked into references for fire and cleansing in this application, I was amazed to find how many times this is actually referenced. A few of them are 1 Peter 1.7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Proverbs 17.3, The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 3.12 and 13. If any man builds on of this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day that will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Back to the end of verse 18. Whose feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze was a very sought-after metal. Not in the sense that, hey, I just won third place at the Olympics, but in making tools, weapons, armor, and in construction. Bronze does not rust, nor is it brittle like iron, and it lasts lifetimes. To give a practical examples, think of the many statues that are made out of bronze. They endure cold, heat, rain, snow, ice, and even pigeons. Many have been around longer before any of us were born, and they will be here long after we are gone. The feet of Christ are described as bronze. The foundation which Christ as a being stands is described as secure. In contrast, there was another time metal was used to describe a feet of something in Daniel 2, 33 and 34, it's referring to the statue from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 33. 
its legs of iron, its feet of partly iron and partly baked clay. While you were watching, a rock, which we know is Christ, was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Needless to say, the whole statue was destroyed and nothing was left. Only Christ remained. Christ is our foundation. The gospel is our foundation. Everything must be built on that. As we continue to look at the rest of these verses, please keep these attributes of Christ in the forefront of your mind. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your faith. Excuse me, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and how you are doing more, excuse me, and how you are now doing more than you did at first. This verse should be of great encouragement to us. Christ knows us. He is not some distant entity that couldn't care less about us. He is a Lord and Savior that has great concern for us, his children. He knows our deeds. Deeds are important to Christ, not for salvation's sake, but for fruit-bearing's sake. John 15, 1-8, Christ states that he is the vine and we are the branches. That if we are in Christ, we will bear good fruit. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. Your love. The word for love here is agape, or divine love. This is not used how we would we say when we say, I love bacon. That is a preference. This is the most intense kind of love. The kind of love that Christ had when he laid his life down for us. This is the type of love that existed in this church. Your faith. Their relationship with Jesus Christ. There are many times faith is described in the Bible. I would like to take a moment and look at a few of them. The first one I will call fig tree faith. So Jesus is walking with his disciples and they came upon a fig tree. Jesus is hungry, so he goes to reach to grab a fig and there's nothing on the tree but green leaves. So Christ curses the tree. The next morning, Jesus and his disciples are walking by the same tree again. And Peter is just amazed. And he says something to the extent, Jesus, that tree you cursed, it's withered. When Christ says something, it's going to happen. And sometimes we are just awestruck that it happens. I mean, we can't hardly believe it. Did we really believe in Christ in the first place? The second example is mustard seed faith. In Matthew 17, Christ encourages his disciples because they only had a little faith. If their faith was only as big as a mustard seed, they could move mountains. A little faith, big things are possible. The third example I will touch on is centurion faith. In Luke 7, a centurion has a sick servant back at home and he asks Christ to heal him. Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. And the centurion stops Christ and says, no, you just need to say the word and he will be healed. Jesus then said he had not found such great faith even in Israel. How is that for a kick in the teeth to the Jewish people? Here's God's chosen people. They had been following their Old Testament and these disciples had been following Christ. And all that faith is dwarfed by the faith of a Gentile, a Roman soldier, no less. Longevity in a religion, nor in church, does not necessarily equate to great faith. Lastly, thief on the cross faith. In Luke 23, a criminal being crucified next to Christ. The criminal realized who Christ is and puts Christ in his rightful place as king. Then Christ tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. When Christ says something will happen, it will happen. If not 
then to that thief and to all of us, this is just kind of some sick joke. I choose to have faith in Christ. The church in Thyatira had faith in Christ. Your service and perseverance, stick to to remain under the circumstances. When the going gets tough, the tough, the not so tough, and all in between, lean on Christ for strength. The end of verse 19 notes that they are doing more than they did at first. They are continuing to serve and they are growing. Verse 19, it's an entirety, shows how close Christ is to us. Now on to the hard part. Point two, Jezebel. I would like to start by noting that the majority of theologians believe that Jezebel is not the actual name of the woman mentioned here. The name Jezebel was used to draw a correlation to the Jezebel from the Old Testament, a familiar spirit, if you will. We can learn about her in First and Second Kings. If Jezebel had a Facebook profile, the comments posted on her wall might read something like this. Unyielding, arrogant, corrupt, power-hungry, wicked, merciless, selfish, seducer, harlot, murderer, etc. Just imagine all the emojis that would accompany such words. She gets married to the king Ahab, who was already not so great at the time, and convinces him to worship Baal. This involves sexual immorality, fornication, as well as food sacrifice to idol, among many other not-so-good things. Next, she starts killing God's prophet. Elijah's running for his life. Ahab is now pouting because there's a vineyard that he wants to own, but the owner won't sell it to him. So what does Jezebel do? Jezebel has the owner of the vineyard killed so, killed, so her husband, the king, can take possession of this piece of property. After her husband dies, she continues to rule through her son. It is not until second king she will meet her end. She was thrown from an elevated window, splattered on the ground, trampled by horses, and devoured by dogs. The only things that were left were her skull, her feet, and her hands. 1 Kings 21.25 says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil. In the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. The term spawn of Satan comes to mind, pure evil. This is the correlation that Christ is using when he talks about the Jezebel in Thyatira. A bit of conjecture, if I may. Why not use the woman's real name? Wouldn't that be helpful to us so we can know who we can avoid? Well, again, I have three thoughts to that. Again, they're purely conjecture, so please treat them as so. One, God is not in the business of gossip around the water cooler. Two, by saying Jezebel, everyone in the church in Thyatira knew exactly who Christ was referring to. And three, the Bible is timeless. As we, learn this, as we will learn, this Jezebel will be wiped out. Why would God allow her real name to last throughout the ages in his book, the Bible? Even today, you would not want to name your kid Jezebel. How did she arrive on the scene? It was allowed to happen. Church leadership and the congregation allowed this to happen. This is not just a sexual immorality and eating food sacrifice to idol issue. Obviously, we know those are bad, okay? But... This is also a gospel issue. The word prophetess used here 
is the same root word used for prophet as in a person gifted in exposing divine truth. A person who is teaching. In other meanings, she had a word from the Lord she wanted to share with you today. She was adding to the teachings of Christ. She was mixing worldliness with the gospel. Here, let's take the gospel, add a little practical thinking, add some great food, add in a little bit of fun. Okay, a lot of fun. Stir it all up, evenly mix it, and bam! You have the new and improved, current with the times, none of the boring, only exciting gospel. She is teaching in this church and leading people astray. Can't you see the appeal? I get to do my church thing. I get to have some good food, and I also get to have some fun while I'm there. What more could a person want? Wait a minute, this could never really happen. Come on, could it? Come on, the sexual immorality thing, the sacrificing food to idols thing, you know, that's a pretty big deal. I'm sure we would squash it as soon as a hint of it showed up. This probably did not happen overnight. Again, this most likely didn't happen as such. Envision Jezebel thinking to herself, well, the pastor's gone on vacation, and oh yeah, most of the elders are out because it's their hunting, it's deer, it's deer season. So let me take my chance to grab the pulpit. Hi, I'm Jezebel, here, and here is a new and improved gospel that God says that we all need to follow, and it's full of food and pleasure beyond anything you have imagined. Again, most likely did not happen this way. More than likely... It was a process of desensitizing and becoming numb to the things of the world. When we take our eyes off Christ and we focus on the petty things, when we focus on the things of this world, when we focus on ourselves, we falter. We need to focus on the gospel and make that our motive. Instead, we focus on our wants, our rights, our opinions as motive, and we try and mix gospel into it. We begin to rationalize that and make, you know, this makes common sense for a bunch of reasons, but we fail to look at it and how it stacks up to God's word. We fail to look at it through the lens of the gospel. We begin to let our guard down. We begin to fall asleep at the wheel. We begin to justify, well, that's just how it is nowadays. Satan doesn't need an entire, or, an entire door open to make a mess of things, just a foothold. Sin was present in this church, and not only was it not called out as sin, but it was tolerated. If we cannot hold things up to the lens of the gospel, if we do not call sin what the gospel calls sin, we need to check on our conversions. We cannot mix what we like with the gospel to make it more palatable. Again, there might be a few skeptics out there saying, no way this would ever happen today. Real day, real time example that happened in a church. There was a man who claimed he had a vision from an angel who told him to go to this hill and dig up these golden plates. On these plates were written new instructions. They were written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and could only be read with these special glasses that just so happened to be buried with these golden plates. These golden plates and glasses have never been produced nor have been seen by anyone but the man who had the vision. Sounds pretty far-fetched, right? This religion of people uses the Bible, as well as another book they hold up right next to it. This book has the teaching from the golden plates written in it. Cutting to the chase, do you want to know what their afterlife is? You get to become your own God, that small g of your own planet, filled with beautiful women for you to enjoy for all eternity. Sounds more like a teenager's wet dream than a religion. Sounds more like selfishness than the selflessness of the gospel. The name of this man is Joseph Smith. 
The name of this religion is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are also referred to as Mormons. When the gospel is no longer the focus, the main things are no longer the plain things, that is when Jezebel makes her move. Point three, just desserts. Verse 21 is written in the past tense. I have given her time to repent. Jezebel knows the truth and refuses it. Christ has extended his hand of forgiveness, of mercy, of salvation, and she has chosen not to take it. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Jezebel is guilty of unconfessed, unrepented sin. And at this point, so are the people that are following her teachings. They still have a chance to repent, but Jezebel's time has passed. She is going to be cast on a bed of suffering. This may seem ironic when connected with the adultery bed, but this is not irony. This is God. Consider how the Jezebel of the Old Testament met her end. We do not know how much time God gave Jezebel or how much time God will give any of us to repent of our sins. In verse 23, Christ says, He will strike her children dead. In a commentary by John Wesley, written on the book of Revelation, he felt this was referring to both the children of born because of this adultery and her followers as well. Romans 6.23 starts out, The wages of sin is death. Here are the people that God is going to strike dead because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira only had a moment with their unconfessed sin, and their life was taken from them. Christ will not let unconfessed, unrepented sin go on forever in his church. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ, and you better believe that he is going to fight for her, and she will be presented to him without spot or blemish. Continuing on in verses 23, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. God is going public with their sin. Ouch. Sin has consequences, sometimes quite embarrassing. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was made public. We still read about it today. Remember from earlier, Christ is omniscient. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. In verse 24, Christ shifts his focus back to the rest of the church in Thyatira, specifically those who were not involved with the whole Jezebel mess. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose on you another burden. I will excuse me. I will not impose any other burden on you. These people kept the gospel in focus. They did not feel the need to understand every facet about Jezebel's teaching to know that it was wrong and that it was a sin. How often have we ever rationalized that? Well, if I know more about the specific details about how some of the bad stuff works, I will be better equipped to handle it. In this moment, we are relying on ourselves, not on Christ. This is our first error before we even become involved with sin that we want to know more about. Christ didn't want to impose more burdens on this church. Sin is a burden. He wants them to hold on to what they have until he returns. He wants them to hold on to the gospel. Verse 26, 
to him who overcomes and does my will to the end. Again, when Christ comes back, I will give authority to the nations. This is a picture of one who is victorious, one who presses on towards the goal despite obstacles. Consider John, the person who penned Revelation. Bit of conjecture here, if you will. Again, he is in exile, and exile is a punishment, a punishment which John received for following Christ. But does the exile stop John from being used by God? So here's the conjecture. So picture this. John is just finishing writing the book of Revelation. To the grace of the Lord Jesus and be with God's people, amen. Well, thanks God for all the cool visions of death and destruction. And oh, by the way, that new heaven and earth, that was pretty cool too. But I really don't want the authorities to find this. You know, the authorities that put me here to suffer. Oh, and by the way, God, you know I'm suffering here, right? It says... I'm just going to take this scroll and hide it. No, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to take it and I'm going to burn it because the nights here get cold on Patmos and that way I'll keep warm in my old age and the authorities will never find this and make my suffering worse than they are and it is now. Do you really think John could have ever had this attitude or do you think he was an overcomer? That he understood the importance of the gospel, the importance of God's word that he did what was necessary to make sure that people that needed to hear the gospel heard it. Obviously, the latter is true because we have it here today. Verse 27. He will rule with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. This comes from Psalm 2.9, which is referring to Christ ruling. The image here is Christ ruling with utmost dominion, authority, and supremacy. And anyone who has overcome will have part in this. This is the rewards for their deeds. This is the rewards for the overcomer. They will have authority over nations to rule with Jesus, just as Christ has received authority from the Father. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star, or to give him, the overcomer, the morning star. The overcomer will receive Christ. Christ is the morning star. Verse 29, He who has an ear. These words are meant for all of us. Let us pray. Lord, Father God, we we thank you for granting us mercy as we work through the text this morning. And I pray that you will continue to help us to keep our focus on you in all that we do. I pray that we would help keep Christ as our foundation, the gospel our foundation and that we would put everything through the lens of the gospel and no other. Pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Benediction is simple. Keep Christ your focus. Thank you for your attention.